So Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. We do, we appreciate our pastors each and every day because they steer us to you, and, and that's what they should be doing. And so we, we thank you for that, and we do ask that you'd bless this time, bless our fellowship. Lord, thank you for wonderful worship. Let our hearts be full of worship throughout the day, and it's yes. in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, so this is, I don't know about some of you, we got Monday off um, at my work, so is this a three-day weekend for anybody else? Oh, okay, so three-day weekends are good because then you get to relax a little bit more, and I know when we relax on the weekends, we tend to watch a little bit more movies, and quick confession here is we watch a lot of movies at our house, so I don't know if anybody else does, but we enjoy them, and you name it, all kinds of the classics, my wife loves American movie classics, and and all the genres, my kids love Marvel, right? So they watch the whole cinematic universe. And we like music too, of course. But we're always keen to point out that the origins or the, the derivations, the samples, if you will, um, especially if it's not original. And, so, uh, and it's not just movies, right? We could be in the car and driving along and I'll say, who? Because I don't know the current artist, right? I only know the old stuff. I go, who's this, Miha? And she'll say, oh, it's Lotto. And I said, Lotto, and she said, yeah, you know, she just copied Mariah Carey. I go, Mariah Carey just copied you know, the Tom Tom Club, and it's to say, who's the Tom Tom Club, right? <laughs> so that's how the conversations go in our, in our house here. But um, I must admit that I'm kind of bothered uh, by the unnecessary remakes, right? Because it seems like they just keep going on with the same old stuff, right? Continuous copies. So, you know, did we really need another West Side Story, right? But you think about it, that was a story about Romeo and Juliet just redone. So there you go. And how many Fast and Furious can we have, right? How many? Are we going to see Vin Diesel racing in his wheelchair down the line, you know? Instead of the Fast and the Furious, it'll be the Fast and the Senile by the time we, we get to it. But I know what is original. This. The Bible's original, amen? So that's the frame of mind I was in. As I was watching another movie, um, and again, it was a Marvel thing, but um, the evil character, I don't even remember the show, so I was, I was trying to remember, but I couldn't. So all I know is he was about to kill somebody, and so he comes up to the guy and he says, you have been found, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting, right? And I thought, hey, I recognize that, right? And I knew it was an original, so there I was, you know, like Winnie the Pooh, you know, Think, 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 you know. And eventually, it came to me, right? Bingo. It's a biblical reference. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in the book of Daniel, right? Right in chapter 5. So if anybody wants to know, you know, how does the Lord give you a message, you know, to prepare for church whenever you, you get a chance to do it? There's one good example, you know. It's just all of a sudden, boom, the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and that's how it goes. And, and, and that's one that one little reference was just enough to get me started. To begin with, I love the book of Daniel. And so, um, you know, I love that verse as well because it says so much. And so I wanted to investigate the whole context so that I could share it with everybody here. And, uh, you know, first, let, let's go to the book of Daniel, if you please. Uh, you can go on your phone as well. Turn there. And if you don't know, it's, it's right after Second Chronicles. Um, and then chronologically, if we're going to set the context... It takes place from 605 B.C., right, 
before Christ, uh, which is when the fall of Jerusalem happens to Nebuchadnezzar and to uh, the empire of Babylon. And then I think it carries on all the way through to the, the restoration of Israel, which occurs in, in 536 BC. So as we turn there, um, again, I want to set up the big picture here. If you don't know, Daniel's one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And this book has a lot going on. And it's primarily narrative in nature, meaning it's mostly stories in which God reveals himself to people and through people like Daniel and his friends. What I like as well is that there's prophecies. And there's a prophecy of history even back then with an eschatology. An eschatology is a portrayal of end times. And so Daniel was, was famous for that eschatology. And then the prophecies within Daniel are both, they're, they're, they're cosmic in, in scope, and they're political in focus, and they're just amazing, right? So it's a really easy book to read for me, and I like it. And it grabs you right off in the beginning. If you look at um, the first chapter, I'm just going to read the first six verses here, where it talks about the Jews being carried off into exile in Babylon. So verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Remember that. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. These were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They were later to be known as Rak, Shak, and Benny. Right? For those of you who had veggie and kids, thought I, it's not in the scripture, folks. It's okay. I could say something like that. <laughs> All right? But this book is relatable. Hopefully, to you too, and but this is kind of a tease. You're going to have to read it all on your own if you'd like to get more into it. But I can relate to Daniel, not because he was young and handsome and smart, but because he was chosen, right? And this is one good reason why we should we should all be able to relate to Daniel. And he was chosen not just by the king's court, right? We know that he was chosen by the Lord, and so were we. Amen. Because it says in Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I love that verse. He was chosen and we are chosen. And finally, I can also relate to Daniel because he was set apart, right? I mean, him and his uh, compatriots were set apart. They were in that land. They were in the world but not of it. And so the stories are interesting. They're great to teach. I've always enjoyed teaching them. Uh, you know, when we were teaching Sunday school for, 
for a while there, for a long time. And I like how the God of Israel, the, the theme is that the God of Israel saves Daniel and his friends from their enemies. And the God of Israel will also save Israel in the same way, you know, from oppression. And of course, you can, you can apply it uh, to the modern times. The God of Israel can save us. Amen? So when I heard this verse quoted on the TV show, of course, got to get in a little bit deeper. And uh, just the last little bit of context here. I mentioned that it's a book of prophecy, and it's also a biographical book, if you will, because it focuses on the life of Daniel within the first six chapters. Chapters one through six are about the life of Daniel, and it's written mostly in Aramaic. And then chapters seven through 12, they're written in Hebrew, and they, they address the prophecies of Daniel. So it's kind of two distinct books, but you know, um, it begins with Daniel as a, when he's young. He's a teenager. And he's carried captive into Babylon. And then his biographic portion there, his life, ends in chapter 6 when he's a very old man. He's close to 90, and he's, and he's standing there still. Uh, I mean, he's fearless just in, in the den of lions, right? So it, it's just a great book. But throughout, he's seen as a faithful witness of God during the reigns of three powerful emperors. And if you can remember, there's Nebuchadnezzar, there's Belshazzar, there's Darius. There's other ones, but these were the most powerful ones. And uh, in these chapters, Daniel interprets dreams and visions that were given to those guys. He was interpreting their dreams, right? But he receives no direct visions himself in these, in these uh, chapters. But he has that gift of interpretation, so that's awesome. And in terms of the prophecies, there, there's four great ones that are given to him in chapters um, 7 through 12 during the reigns of, I mentioned, Belshazzar, Darius, and then there was another emperor, uh, Cyrus. And they came chronologically during the same time. So it's like his life, and then at the same time, this was all going on, okay? So today, I was going to look at primarily 27, but there's a preceding verse there, verse 26, that would also add to the context. And I'm calling it the contextual verse, um, where it says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And then we're going to look at verse 27, which is, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. So as we settle in on chapter 5, and, and you can turn there as well to chapter 5, sorry. Just want to quickly remind you, chapter 1 dealt with the exile, and Daniel and his friends are taken into court. Chapters 2 and 3 each had great stories. You can read them on your own. And then chapter 4 is important because King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a big tree, which was interpreted as a foreshadow of things to come. That's a great story. But I'll give you the, the spoiler alert at the end of that chapter uh, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and so he's succeeded by his son, which is natural for those times. So let's get started. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, thank you. I needed a yes there. <laughs> okay, so we're in chapter 5, verse 1, and I'm going to read this, um, and you can follow along, please. So in verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders, bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Remember that? So that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. 
The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees started knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners, and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him, and in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. And I'm thinking, well, where was he? Why wasn't he there already? But okay, verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of gods of the gods is in you and that you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else, but nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. And he lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched in the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, verse 24, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Verse 26, here is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, 
your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and the Persians. And then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over his kingdom at the age of 62. Isn't that a great story? I want to let that sink in. Also, it gives me a chance to get some water. <laughs> so here we are, finally made it to the first real point. But don't worry, I'm not, I'm not talking that long, folks. Um, but right, bad news. It's, this is bad news if you're, when you first hear this message, right? And I looked at all the commentaries, okay, not too deeply because I'm not a theologian, but uh, there are some guiding principles here. And just by my own assessment, the first one is God is in control, amen? amen? And that should go without saying. Anytime you see a miracle happening, uh, you know, a hand up there on the wall writing, you got to know, okay, I guess we're not in control of the situation here, and, and God is in control. Because on the surface, there's, there's all kinds going on. Uh, history tells us that the armies were already around the city of both the Medes and the Pers- Persians. And of course, uh, we're talking Babylon. And from the descriptions that I've read, it, you know, the old word I used to use was, it's, it's gnarly. It's just, we know that one of the ancient wonders of the world were the, were the hanging gardens of Babylon. But it's also said that the, the walls were up to 100 meters high on the, surrounding the city, and that the walls were also 25 meters thick. Can you imagine? I mean, it's crazy. So if you're the king, right, and he was the king, he had no fear. And so he was, he was arrogant, and he, he threw what amounted to a blasphemous party, really, because he used the temple's stolen gold and the silver cups to toast uh, material gods. But who's really in control here? I mean, little did he know that, he was a, that this was to be his last night on earth. And then the second guiding principle is that God's word is personal. Amen? And that's true, I know. It's true throughout the Bible. And Daniel is well aware of this. And so Daniel, he doesn't hold back, right? And this message, if you were to read chapter 4, the message that he's giving the king, it's much different than the preceding chapter, right, when he was talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Because here, he's, give, he's not giving him any advance warning to Belshazzar. He's not giving him time for repentance. He's not showing mercy because he said in verse 22, you knew all of this. You saw it happening to your father, right? And yet you ignored the lesson and you chose to blaspheme. He said, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This was personal 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago. And now, of course, we know it's not just for Belshazzar, and it wasn't just for the people of Israel when they were hearing the Old Testament being written to them, but this message is for you and I and anyone who reads this story. It doesn't matter if it's in the Old or the New Testament. God's Word is personal, amen? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, most of you know this, that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So yeah, this message is personal, and it is personal for us. And so let's look at these inscriptions um, in verse 26. 
Many, God has numbered the days. So our days are numbered. I mean, how awesome is that? We even sang that this morning. Our days are numbered, right? And so when I first read this, the first thing I think of is, is again, Psalm 139, right? Where it says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. The Lord knows he's in control. He knew before we're born, all of our days would be numbered. He knows. I spend so much time worrying about, you know, how long life is, you know. But he knows, and all I have to do is stay with him, right? Job 14.5 says, a person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months, and you have set limits. He cannot, or she cannot exceed. That's not a bad interpretation, of course, but that's just the beginning of the verse. It says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And then that adds clarification. Plus, you should know, it says, he says it twice, mene, mene, right? So it's numbered, numbered. Now, you remember, um, it's written in the language of Babylon, right, which is Aramaic here. And so, you know, I'm no linguistics professor or anything, but from what I understand in Aramaic, there's no vowels. So it's up to the interpreter to put in the vowels, which allows for then... Um, variation, but it also allows for clarification. So Daniel interpreted the first minute as God has numbered your kingdom and counted out the duration, right? God has numbered it. But the second one, he interpreted as God has finished your kingdom. In other words, the numbering is now complete. So he's numbered it, and then the numbering is now complete. Your time has run out. In other words, the jig is up, right, for you. And that's bad news in and of itself. But it's a very good contextual verse, too. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. So with this in mind, now let's take a look at the second verse here, which is verse 27. And it says, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You have been weighed. So based on your talents, your power, your knowledge, uh, you know, as opposed to all the responsibility that comes with it, right? that you have, you've been weighed and you've been found wanting. In other words, you've fallen short. You're a little light. You're of insufficient weight to tip the scales in your favor. And this is definitely personal for all of us, for anyone who's reading it, right? Because if you were to just put all your good deeds on one side against all that you are capable of doing, and yet have done or have not done, you ask yourself, where would you fall? Where would the scales tip? And of course, this is judgment based on works alone, and that's how judgment after death back then uh, really was, right? It was different than now. Now we know the rules are different, and the difference is it's Jesus, amen? So that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I used to always say that in the beginning, uh, opening of our Sunday school classes too was what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You know, and then they would repeat everything. The Old Testament is everything that happened before Jesus, and the New Testament is everything after. And I said, good, you know, because that's what we try and do is remind them basic stuff. The main things are the plain things, but it's a big difference. <laughs> okay, so in the New Testament, yes, sin remains, but we don't have to do sacrifices. And I was going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews chapter nine and chapter ten and. Then, didn't have time, you know, to, to go 
We wouldn't have time here either. So if you're interested, look at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 because it's wonderful illustrations of how that works. But to Belshazzar, and anyone reading or, or hearing the book of Daniel back then, or even today, if they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the message is bad news, right? And it's personal. And this, it's not new. I mean, this, uh, this type of thinking, this frame of thought that we would all be judged, it's been around forever because the book of Job was written a long time ago. And in Job chapter 31, verse 6, Job said, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless, right? Let God weigh me in honest scales. And we knew that. Just a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs uh, chapter 16, we were reminded that God uses righteous judgment and righteous balances. He doesn't have to, right? He has a right to do so. He has a right to judge us. And so these inscriptions were personal to Belshazzar. They remain personal to us. And when we read it, hopefully uh, we read it as a New Testament believer under grace. So that's why I love this, this message here, where it's at in the book of Daniel. Yeah, it's bad news for Belshazzar, but you know, I'm sure you can appreciate this because this is a good example of a message that's evangelical in nature, and yet it's in the Old Testament. So, you know, it, it's evangelical because it brings whoever is reading it, it brings their attention to the fact that we are sinners, right? And that's a theme. It's a theme throughout the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The theme is, you know, that we have a need for redemption. And really, if you think about it, that's the theme of the Bible, right? The Bible is a book of redemption. So although it's in the Old Testament, it's not just for the people of Israel. Yes, we're in New Testament times. Yes, we are in the church age, but we still need redemption. Amen? So we're still sinners. Um, and I loved, I, I thought of uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, because that illustrates it great, right? But if you look at the end of verse 22 of Romans chapter 3, there's a, there's a lead in there. It says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the God. So then it hit home. I was like, yeah, we're, we're all sinners. And therefore, what should happen to us, you know, as we detour here on the road to Romans real quickly, but what should happen to us based on this? that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Well, it says in chapter 6, verse 23, you guys know this as well, the wages of sin is death. That's the first part. The wages of sin are death. That's what we deserve. And this sin, it's this sin. There is a button there, yes. It's this sin which remains that barrier which would keep us normally separated from God. And I love that. But you and I know there's more to that story. And, the, and part B of that verse, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That sums it up great. For people hearing this message, not just for the first part, but more importantly for the second part, that's what I would interpret now as good news, which brings us to the second portion here. And of course, good news is the gospel, and the gospel means good news. So you should be on good news part because there's a gift involved, and it's personal. It's not just for you, and it's eternal life in and, and with and through Jesus. Amen? And again, it's, it's by virtue of a choice, right? Um, people don't have to speculate on, on, on uh, how to be balanced and judged fairly and well, it's really more than fair. We get such a good deal out of it. They don't have to be ignorant. 
And I was thinking uh, of the jailer in um, Acts chapter 16. And if you remember, I'll, I'll tell you quickly here. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. And after some prayer, huge earthquake happens, right? So big that the whole jail just fell apart. And people could literally get up and just walk out of a jail, which was meant to be so secure, right? And if you're the jailer, to lose a prisoner, that meant certain death back in those days. And the jailer realized, oh, man, I have been on the wrong side my whole life because whoever caused this earthquake, you know, was doing it in response to all the prayer that was going on for these guys, for Paul and Silas. And so the jailer, in verse 29, called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. I mean, he just threw himself at their feet, and he then brought them out, and he asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that awesome? I mean, that's the thing that he's thinking. He knew that not just his life, but his eternal life was in jeopardy, and he's like, this is what's going on. I have to make a decision now. I've been on the wrong side all my life. And of course, we know that they replied in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, this was over 2,000 years ago. We still have that option, right? We still have that way out. We still have, uh, you know, the good news applied to us. He died for our sins, Jesus did. And the good thing is now we don't have to come every year with a sacrifice to atone for our sins like in the Old Testament, right? We don't have, or every day for that matter, it's really what we should be doing because Jesus was and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, right? Um, And so I did, I pulled at least a couple of verses out of Hebrews and one was chapter 10, verse 14. It says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, I didn't say it. God says it here. It's only one sacrifice now, and that's Jesus. And amen? So it's good news. And, and now we can come before the Lord in heaven without sin on our record, just as if we never sinned at all. And I love that. You can approach God in confidence. You don't have to wait out the whales of justice. Can you imagine if we were judged on the scales of justice? And if you're like, you know, 50-50, you know, and you kind of go up there, how would you feel? It's scary, but our sins, they're forgiven, and we can come in full confidence. In in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, because we're so good? No, by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So what must I do to be saved? The answer for you, the answer for me, it's the same in Uh, Paul, when he was closing the little road to Romans here, he went on and on, for me anyways, up to to chapter 10. We all know in verse 9, he said, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Because it's all about him. It was all made possible by Jesus, amen? So he's the answer to the question yesterday, the answer today, and the answer tomorrow. And if King Belshazzar only understood who he was dealing with and what was at stake, he would have sought out the Lord, the same Lord who waits for those who seek him. So last little note here, all I did was put down in appreciation here because we're so blessed. And we're blessed because we know and we've been taught how to read the Bible, including the Old Testament, amen? So I, I remember talking to one of my brothers and he said, well, I'm kind of a New Testament guy. And I'm thinking, 
What? I mean, all you got to do is look for Jesus, right? And look for an element of that good news message in the Old Testament and look at the analogies, the metaphors, what have you. And it wasn't that difficult in Daniel chapter 5. But really, you can find Jesus in pretty much every book in the Old Testament. Amen? And so this idea, I love that this idea has been reinforced week in, week out, uh, and year in and year out now by our pastors because they're consistent, right? And the, they know that the Bible is consistent. So as long as they stick with the Word, you know, they're okay. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I mentioned that the Bible is the book of redemption. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's a book of redemption all the way through, Old Testament and New Testament. And it's a book of redemption of a people that would be, this redemption would be provided by a Messiah, a Savior, Jesus. And so all these years, you know, pastors have encouraged us not to just read the Bible, but to study it, right? It's not enough just to read it, because if you study it and then you apply it and you think about Jesus and where you can find him in there, it's a lot better than just reading it. So that's why I titled my message, Shape Our Perspective, because of the role that our pastors play in this and shaping our perspective. And, and it's so very much appreciated that they, they do it right. Granted, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? So, but praise the Lord, uh, you know, they're obedient to him. So I asked you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and look at verse 13. And this explains it quite well. It says, until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save your, both yourself and your hearers. Question. How often do we hear from the Word of God when we gather together here on Sunday? Every Sunday, right? And every Wednesday when we get together too. And it's expository preaching, verse by verse. It gives us uh, access to the full counsel of God, which is what they're supposed to be doing. And Paul, when he was writing again to Timothy on his second letter, with an understanding of the value of teaching God's Word consistently, he said, no matter what, in chapter 2, Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He said, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Verse 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul knew what was up. He knew about our nature, right? And he said, don't tell them what they want to hear. Preach the word, right? So I love that. Our pastors don't make up their own doctrine, right? They don't teach incorrect doctrine just to please our ears, just to, to bring people in, to keep us happy, make us tithe more or something like that right? And I could spend a lot of time reading scriptures that warn about false and incorrect teaching because there are warnings throughout the Bible and throughout the Old Testament. But thankfully, well, we don't have time, but thankfully we don't have to apply it here either. So in adhering to good doctrine, they shape our perspective in a positive way. Amen? 
But it's not as if we should only listen to them, right? Because we're blessed, right? We're told by them when it comes to doctrine, without hesitation, be Bereans, right? And that's a blessing to be told that. I want to be encouraged to do that. And it's, it, they do this all the time, as recently as the end of August here. Be a Berean, right? Check what I'm saying. Don't just listen, but check what we're saying. Because um, we all realize whoever is up here, what we say, the things that we say, we're accountable. We're accountable to you. We're accountable to God. So we're, we're keenly aware of that responsibility and the accountability, and we should, right? It's, it's in black and white. It's in the Bible in chapter 3 of James, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's so humbling. You're going to be judged more strictly if, you, if you're teaching um, it's scary sometimes, too. I pray things up. And, but we've been blessed, right, to have been fed God's word correctly and consistently. And, you know, I thought about some of the, for lack of a better term, greatest hits, you know, over the years that we've been hearing on all these, these messages here. You know, one that stands out was love God, live right, and witness to others. Because that's something you can live by, right? And, and I was so excited when I finally understood the difference between justice and mercy, and grace, and to be able to, you know, verbalize it to people. Because it's important to make that distinction. And I love the message about uh, Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because some of these messages, they're like, they're life-changing. If you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, you come in and it's like, whoa, I remember that day, and I was like this before, and I'm like this after, just because of one message, Right? And um, my last one of the quickies here is, it's not about you. Right? And for years, I was uh, trying to be the best Christian that I could be, you know. And what's all that about? It's not about you. Yes, you want to be the best Christian, but it's so that you can reflect Jesus and bring more people into his kingdom and minister to more people. That's what it's all about. So you don't want to just be this brain of, of Bible knowledge, you know, but not just to know God's word, but to do it, right? To live it and to share Jesus. So I'm very appreciative of all the opportunities that we've had to learn and grow because of our pastors. So as we close here, I want to leave you one more takeaway here. Our pastors are part of a chain that has been set up by the Lord, right? He's responsible for all these blessings. And they'll tell you that first and foremost. It's all about the Lord, right? And the word of God says it better as we close in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 11 through 13, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You want to really bless them? Okay, cards and... Everything is great, but you want to bless them? Serve the Lord. Serve them, because they do their part, amen? So let's do ours. All right. Let's all stand and give the Lord a hand. <laughs>